0: Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
1: It's always go at the relationship by providing value. You know, always we want to go in thinking, not what favor I'm going to ask out of this person, but what can I bring to the table? How can I benefit them? And at the same time, know that a sponsor will only become a sponsor when they see that you're being obviously successful, that you have the passion and the grit to succeed. You don't have to be all the way a superstar, but you have to be somebody who is, again, all in into their career.
2: Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time.
3: Feel like you're doing everything you were told but you're not moving ahead at work, nor having the impact you seek, then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truths playbook you never
1: got.
2: Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Many of us aspire to not just be part of the conversation, but to have an actual seat at the table where decisions and direction are made. How should we think about the skills and transitions we need at different stages of our career so having a seat becomes a reality? There's no one better to discuss this topic than my guest today, Jenny Fernandez, Chief Marketing Officer at Loacker, who has walked the talk, elevating her own career and those of others, particularly women, as an executive coach. I've invited Jenny to reflect on what her 20 years marketing multi-million dollar brands around the world and advising startups, a very interesting mix of things she does, what those experiences can teach us about managing our own careers and brands. Jenny's published in Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Forbes, serves as professor at Columbia Business School and NYU, board advisor to the American Marketing Association, and board chair of the Global Connected for Women Foundation. She's also set to launch, very excited about this, her new book, Zigzag to the Top, How to Master the Habits, Behaviors, and Mindsets to Succeed. Jenny, welcome to 97% Effective.
1: Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here to speak with you and your audience.
2: What's one thing, you know, one interesting or important thing about you that we can't find out about you (laughs) on the internet that you'd like listeners to know?
1: Yes. Great question, Michael. Basically, one of the things that my audience may not know uh, from my profile or from knowing me is that I had the opportunity, the pleasure, really, to spend three years working and living in China, in Asia Pacific. It was an amazing growth experience for me, both professionally and personally. As you know, as a marketer, we're all about the consumer, being very consumer-centric and having access to so many different types of consumers the Asian consumer is, is in a different, you know, kind of time frame versus the U.S. They move so fast. You know, China's, you know, uh, growing leap and bounds faster than the U.S. and going growing through uh, very different growing pains. So uh, it was just an amazing experience. And obviously, personally, having the ability to travel all over Asia, Australia, it was just, you know, India, it was just really, truly amazing.
2: And I remember we first connected talking about some of that common experience. You have had this very progressive career. You took that zigzag to Asia. I think that's very interesting and that also catapulted you into senior roles uh, when you came back to the States. We know that many leaders kind of write their own stories. They scrub parts, they bend the truth and in the CMO role, you clearly have a seat at the table. You're very comfortable in your own skin. I've seen the interviews. And you're writing this book now about navigating your careers. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. And in the spirit of kind of sharing path and lessons learned, if there was a do-over that you could do in your career, kind of knowing what you know now and, and what you help other people at, uh, out with, and you could do something differently over again, what would you have done to have helped you accelerate your
1: path? I know it's like 2020 and reflection is always so insightful. So, to be honest, I think what I would have done differently is I would have taken a leap into entrepreneurship early on in my career, especially because, you know, looking back 12, you know, 15 years ago in the kind of, you know, 2009, 10, that's where the internet was truly growing. And you started to see a fragmentation of businesses, startups. Especially I was, you know, in the food business, Michael, and before you needed to have a hundred million dollars at least to open up a bakery, to get into the business. And back, you know, 10 years ago, you only needed your kitchen and Amazon and you were able to, you know, you know, sell direct to consumer. You had ability to access consumer communication. You didn't have to go to TV production level, you know, marketing. So um, I think I would have loved to have done an entrepreneurship venture early on, just so that I can learn that level of agility and what it takes to be so greedy when you know you're basically bootstrapping your business uh, from the get-go. A
2: couple of the things that I noticed as as I worked through your career and, and we've talked to each other that I'd love to talk about, because you also bring this up. In some of your articles that you've written, the first is around you know building key relationships, mentors and sponsors to accelerate you. And the story, which you alluded to, kind of going to Asia. Actually, if I heard correctly, I'm going to put in the show notes a fantastic talk you gave at the AMA, which is on the web, that you had built a relationship kind of early in your career with a boss, and then she later actively brought you over to Asia to that senior role that you were talking about. Can you, can you share how you made that happen? Does that just happen organically, or were there steps that people should be thinking about or doing?
1: Yeah, no, thank you. So just to give a little bit more background to the audience, basically, this person, her name is Haiyan Wan. She was a prior manager that I had early on in my career. And we worked together for a couple and a half years. And it was an amazing experience. We launched a new product, a new brand for our craft, which was a very big achievement because, as you can imagine, launching a new brand takes a lot of investment. So it it was an amazing, amazing, really, experience. And we got along so well. So we had an organic kind of, you know, professional relationship with her being my manager. Um, I was the junior brand manager at the time. And when she was uh, promoted to an expat assignment, she became the CMO of Craft uh, China. So um, I felt like, you know, a great asset, a great both mentor and manager of mine was, was leaving, And uh, I made a point of keeping in touch now I am the one kind of dating myself. That was around right before the iPhone came out in 2007. So <laughs> I kept I kept in touch just using kind of the good old fashioned you know phone and and whenever she came uh, back, uh, maybe for a yearly visit. But I made a point of adding value, finding ways to you know to bring her news, to bring her assets, to keep her in the minds of other marketers here as somebody who could continue to drive value to the organization. And I think that relationship that we kind of established during that time was something that was beneficial to both of us. I thought she's an amazing person doing interesting things. I want her to be in my professional life. So I kept that alive. And I think that she saw the value that I was genuinely bringing to her uh, without any ideas of what that could come, you know, what that could result in. Um, and, um, I never thought, Michael, that I was going to go to China. I always thought if I ever pursued an expat assignment, it would be Europe or something, something closer to the U.S.
2: (laughs) And, And then did you raise your hand when there was a position or she carved one out for you or thought of you first? How did that happen?
1: Yeah. No. So basically, she she carved it out uh, for me and approached me because, uh, as she lay, she kind of informed me, she thought I was somebody who could navigate the waters with people from different cultures who could influence. She saw how I navigated very challenging relationships with cross functional teams that were. You know, kind of uh, not not so pro-innovation, because innovation, as we all know, is a disruptor, right? Innovation disrupts manufacturing. Innovation is more costly and expensive. So sometimes the groups of people who have been in the company for many, many years are hesitant to do innovation because innovation has a high probability of failure, right? 89% of all innovation fails. So she saw how it was basically uh, a great person navigating those waters, influencing people, being vulnerable, uh, and enrolling them into our vision. So she thought in this new role that she was crafting, which was going to be for the regional responsibilities for marketing for Oreo, our number one global brand, uh, that my soft skills, my assets were really going to be a value to the organization.
2: So you already at that stage had this brand around being able to navigate, you know, different stakeholders in disruptive situations. On this point, so she knew about you and thought highly of you. And I I would draw this distinction between mentors and sponsors. So not every mentor will then go to bat, carve out a position for you. And there's very good research that you and I have both looked at that actually shows, I know you coach a lot of executive women that women tend to kind of get mentored to death and yes. not necessarily always get sponsored and i see this with some of my clients who okay they get another role they've got to prove themselves right constant you know mentoring going on but not a lot of sponsoring which really is what takes you to to the next level yes. any thoughts or advice that you kind of when you're working with executives of how to convert people over or to make sure someone's not just going to mentor you forever
1: Yeah, that is a really, really great, great observation. Michael, what I see is, as you mentioned, women always have to prove themselves. Men tend to be, I think, even the wrong way to say they have the attributes and the capacity to succeed. And sometimes, unfortunately, women, it's more, have you done it before? So um, I think what we need to think about when trying to navigate those waters and convert a mentor to a sponsor is always go at the relationship by providing value. You know, always we want to go in thinking, no, what favor I'm going to ask out of this person, but what can I bring to the table? How can I benefit them? And at the same time, know that a sponsor will only become a sponsor when they see that you're being obviously successful, that you have the passion and the grit to succeed. You don't have to be all the way a superstar, but you have to be somebody who is, again, all in, into their career. And the distinction that I want to make is that sometimes I think people, when they don't have the perfect circumstances, and frankly, we never do, we sometimes become a little bit negative or fall into the victim mentality. And we have to step away from that and say, I know it's not perfect. I know there may be biases or circumstances that are not in my favor. Am I doing my part? so that I can grow, so that I can succeed, so that I can differentiate myself. And actually, that was one of the reasons that I was uh, very intent in going abroad. It was this idea that being a global marketer was going to be truly differentiating in terms of me accelerating my career. So again, you have to be very strategic and do things with intent. And one of the things that I always coach, especially my, my female clients, is that we as women tend to be great at building relationships, but we need to leverage them. And for that, it's being very strategic. I'm sure you heard about the research from Robert Cialdini about reciprocity and this idea that you know, humanity and human nature is that we provide value and people will kind of, you know, reply back with that kind of value and help us in a later time. So how do we do that in a way that is strategically beneficial to the career that we're looking to build long term?
2: And the leverage here is also not being shy about asking, to your point, too, you yeah. know, providing a lot of value, but then also talking about things that you need. And this talking about I, I want to bring this up because I thought you brought up a, a really interesting point in a in an article or an interview. A lot of people get uncomfortable talking about themselves, like you know, it's this self promotion thing. And you bring up this the value of you called it peer allies. Can you say more about that? Because I think it's uh, it's very powerful. It's other people also talking about you in effect. But talk more about this peer allies concept.
1: Yes, yes. No, thank you. Um, so it's this idea that obviously you, you want to surround yourself by people that can support you. You mentioned the mentor, the sponsor, this peer ally, it could be basically somebody in your field who is more or less your peer in terms of the, the title or function, or they could be part of the cross-functional team as well. You want to have other stakeholders that are also looking out for you. So when we talk about peer allies, I'll give you two examples. If, for example, uh, you're an introvert and you are not as prone to talk much in meetings or that drains you, is ensuring that you have somebody in your team or in your ally group that is going to complement your skills. So if they love presenting in front of you know big groups. And you love being analytical and the financial or the you know technology aspect of the project. How can you pair together so that you're both benefiting each other, so that you're both better as a unit? So yeah, so this is actually an advice that I give uh, a lot of my clients, both uh, you know women and introverts, as I mentioned. This idea of having a conversation, a very strategic conversation with somebody in your function or in your broad team from the cross-functional group and identifying ways how you can lift each other, how you can, again, support each other. This could be by complementing your skills, uh, and also this could be uh, in case that you know, you're know you a woman and sometimes, unfortunately, you may not be heard in meetings. Having, having an ally, having a male ally actually look out for you and be, be also somebody who highlights your voice so that you have somebody else who's basically saying, Let's listen to the great advice that, you know, Jenny has just said. So in that way, we're helping change, you know, behaviors and we're helping the other person navigate through the structure and environment that we have to work within so that we can both be successful.
2: I'd also point out, so this is in the context of an organization. Yes. You have this great collaboration on many articles that you've written with Luis and, You could be rivals, right, executive coaches, but you have paired up, collaborated, and written. And a- anything about how that came about, or the benefits or challenges of doing that?
1: Yes, yes. So uh, you, you mentioned my partner uh, and you know uh, co-author, uh, Luis Velasquez. He's an executive author uh, and a coach, very successful. So yes, basically, actually, Luis approached me about collaborating uh, in an HBR article. A couple of years ago, and that's how we started. But you know what? If I were to think back how he noticed me, I wrote an article on LinkedIn and I highlighted his work.
2: <laughs> I see. So, okay. So that so opened it, that up, and then he reached out to you, and the collaboration started.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And we complement each other very well. He is uh, somebody who has been working as a professional coach for many, many years. And I'm somebody who's still an executive. So I have, I have, basically, I wear both hats. So I bring the lived experience of having been on those shoes. So I think I complement our points of view in a different way. And we have gone about you know approaching many different articles, for, as you mentioned, for many different publications, first Harvard, then uh, Fast Company, and we continue uh, to work together on, on other ones as well.
2: And I notice, because this goes into my next question, that you both swap who's first in terms of the <laughs> byline. But but I bring this up because yeah. you talk, we talk about cal- collaboration, something that you brought up earlier. Yeah, we are collaborating at the same time. We are very much competing <laughs> with others, right? If if there's multiple, three of us, well, probably one person is going to become the VP. And a couple of the things that you said here. I'm imagining the audience may, may have questions saying, if I'm having I'm more introverted and I'm having a, a, a male speak up, what may be for me, they may be getting out undue credit um, or being seen as the leader. Research shows that we associate one person um, or there's a lot of advice of not to co-publish uh, if you're a woman with other individuals because you will not be viewed as the one who was the main contributor. And so navigating this collaboration but being wary that these biases may exist or not everyone's always got your best interest at heart, I'll speak up for you and I'll take the credit behind the scenes. (laughs) Anything to watch out for um, in organizations? I know we don't want to say organizations are competitive, but many of them are.
1: Oh, completely. Uh, I mean... Even though I I had the luxury to work for many organizations and an industry that was not as competitive, we're we're not banking (laughs) or hedge fund managers, Uh, but at the same time, we were competing for roles. Uh, We were competing for resources, both money and people. Um, And and you're right. This is where taking control of the narrative and ensuring that you're building strong relationships with, with upper management is key. Because at the end of the day, uh, like they say, the squeaky wheel, you know, gets, gets the grease. So you, you want to make sure that people know what you want. So uh, voicing and asking is really needed. And this is something that I think I have uh, learned and, and grown in my own career and I advise all my clients to do so. Um, and as you mentioned, in terms of the collaboration with, uh, with uh, Louise, uh, obviously, I, I continue to do my, my own work, and, and this is part of the reason that I also published uh, today, actually, in Forbes on my own, because I know that, unfortunately, there's biases within the environment that I'm working on that people may think, you know, I am not the, the lead writer when I, I am in many, many articles. And, and we, as you mentioned, um, uh, go hand in hand in terms of the, whose ideas we publish or client work we present. So we're great collaborators, but people don't have the view in terms of how we work together. So you have to work uh, through the, through those uh, challenges as well. You've
3: been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview.
2: So, So you said two things there. You know, speaking up, taking control of the narrative, that is a perfect segue into, you know, your wheelhouse, which is branding. A- as a marketer, I mean, this is what you think of, how do you build brands? And there's a lot of connection over here to the work you do uh, with personal branding, kind of career management, and you help others on that. Is there, a, you know, one major lesson or thing, pe- you know, people should know about personal branding that, that you would point out both your perspective as a CMO, but also working with people on, on their personal brands?
1: Yeah, uh, I think one of the myths that I have found or challenges that sometimes people have is, again, especially especially uh, people who are very strong early on in their careers, who are great individual contributors. Everything they have achieved in life as a professional has been because of their own achievements, right? Their own doing. And many times that is one of the big derailers that they have as they become managers and leaders, because they still think that they have to do it all. So it becomes sometimes this idea of perfectionism. I am the only one that can do it, that hero mentality, or it becomes uh, a challenge because you're not able to amplify what you're doing by delegating, by empowering others, By taking a step back and allowing others to succeed who are under your tutelage because you're used to the limelight and you don't, uh, I think, are able to, again, taking control of the narrative, show that if you're managing a group of people, their work is a reflection of your management. It's not in absence of it. So you don't have to do it all. You're actually part of something bigger and you need to be able to speak to that You need to be able to kind of toot your own horn as a result of that and obviously take a step and a minute to develop other people because that is part of your role as a manager and a leader.
2: Very good point. A lot of people have multiple interests or don't know exactly, you know, where they want to be in five years. How should people be thinking of navigating this kind of dilemma of, I'm not sure exactly where I should stake out a positioning at this point? How do people? How do you advise people to work through that?
1: Yeah, no, no. That that is a great point, and it's a great uh, kind of learning for for everyone. So um, there are several aspects to that. Uh, you know, Michael. I guess first of all is elevating your own self awareness. So asking yourself, what am I good at, and being clear that this is not about developing new skills. It's not. Sometimes people think, oh, in order to advance in my career. They need to develop new skills. And frankly, it, when you get to a certain level in your career, it's about leaning in in your strengths. It's, you don't have to know it all. You surround yourself with a team that complements you, but you lean in in your strengths and that's what differentiates you. So that is one learning, that's self-awareness. The second, I advise everyone to do what I call is a brand assessment, which is it's a simple survey. Um, that you can, you know, email three to five people that you know and trust who can give you honest feedback. And you just ask them, you know, what what are the three key words that you think about me when you think about my reputation or what I bring to the table? And when you match those two, that's where you understand is your self-assessment and how you see yourself the same as your reputation, how others see you. And if they're not, then you have to get to work.
2: So you've got that work to do. Yeah, I was just doing a 360 today, and that's (laughs) one of the first questions. What are the three adjectives when this individual comes to mind? So so doing that assessment and then thinking about how you want to position and if you've got work to do between the gap of how people perceive you.
1: Yes, exactly. And then, frankly, once you identify two to three areas that you think, okay, great, I am passionate about these areas. I have achievements and talents and results in my career that prove that I can work in this area, that I can be an expert in this area. Then you can start building the narrative, whether it is, you know, speaking as an expert in those areas, become a panel member, become a keynote speaker, write for LinkedIn, There's so many things that you can do in order to, again, continue to show that you have expertise in that area, add value, and make sure that others start recognizing you. And this is kind of the push and pull strategy. At the beginning, it's going to be you, you know, kind of uh, pushing a little bit. But with enough time, people are going to recognize you and are going to associate you with those three different brand attributes that you have chosen. And that's where the branding comes into place.
2: And I'd link it back to what you said earlier, the collaboration part. If you've got peer allies who are picking up on that, if you've yeah. certainly got mentors and sponsors who know about that, they are also echoing or amplifying those things. So you don't have to do as much of the pushing,
1: right? Branding takes a long time. You know, even if you're doing a corporate brand, for a consumer to know that what they sell belongs to a particular company, they have to see it three to seven times over time. So the same for us. You have to consistently provide that messaging so that others start recognizing your name and then recognizing you with those brand attributes.
2: And I want to ask you, because you said earlier, right, it used to be multimillion-dollar brands. Now, in the startup and disruptive world, you can almost be guerrilla and do certain things. Uh, You know, so if three to seven... Impressions are there kind of guerrilla tactics or or very simple things that people could be doing that maybe they're overlooking.
1: Yes, yes, I think sometimes people are. Well, first of all, you have to get over the fear that if you're an executive working in corporate corporate still, that you are potentially not able to have your own voice. You can. You just have to make sure you know if you need to say on LinkedIn that uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of the company. This is my opinion. Then. Write that there so that it is clear that what you say is not an endorsement, it's just an opinion. And I think basically we just have to get in the conversation, be part of the discourse. So I think once we start doing that, some of the guerrilla tactics they can do is simply use what's available. LinkedIn is the number one business, social media, and it's free. You don't have to convince any editor to let you publish. You can do a newsletter monthly, you can post uh, your own thoughts, or you can repost. Uh, some other uh, thought leader or author. So simple things that you can do that literally can take 15 minutes a, a day or in a week.
2: Very simple things you can do to take advantage of that.
1: Let's talk about
2: career transitions, which you we've talked about and alluded to, because I think you had two excellent articles uh, that you wrote with Luis. And you know, as you move up in your careers, and you've used this phrase too, right? What got you here is not going to, not what's going to get you there. One piece was around key derailers. You've talked about sometimes, you know, don't be the victim and and go see what you can do, own things and take control of it. Also be leery of staying in your comfort zone, of doing the exact same things. And the other one is, is, which I see come up a lot and I'd love to talk about a little more, is this part around being too busy. Mainly because a lot of the people we both work with want to be very helpful to others. So it's hard for them to say no. And that can then fill their time of doing the work or spending too much work for others and not of the things that they need to, to move up. Practical strategies here for people who become overly busy and then aren't working on the things that they need that are actually going to help them grow and go to the next
1: level. Yes. No, thank you. I think it's first of all acknowledging that busy should be an exception. It should not be the norm. So, obviously, there are busy times of the year, and that's fine. There are busy tax seasons or planning for 2023. But you should have time to focus on the future. You should have time for strategic thinking. And if you're not able to, that means that there are actually some additional problems that you need to solve for because why are there always urgent problems coming up, right? Uh, that, that is, that is basically a signal that there's some other issues within the processes or lack of processes, maybe gaps. If it's a very flat organization, uh, that is happening, that is leading to this influx of urgent problems that you have to take care of. Also, I would say, Michael, then if you, if you're in this situation, I think you have to ask yourself, do I have the ability to delegate? Why am I spending so much time? And there are many great practical Tools uh, uh, like Laura Vanderkam has this great 15-minute kind of uh, Excel Excel tracking tool that you're able to track how you spend your time, and it's really eye-opening because then you realize what is the time suck that you know is taking all of your time. I am a big fan of Google's 20% time, which basically means that you are allowed for a certain amount of time, hopefully 20, but even if it's 10% of your week where you have kind of these stop and think moments, you can block at a Friday morning and just think about what are projects that could drive innovation, that could drive growth? What are interesting things or strategic thinking that I could be doing to advance uh, you know, the direction of, of the group? So I think you have to be proactive in ensuring that you're protecting that so that you're not mortgaging the future for the present.
2: So creating the space for that and, you know, I would also add here on top of all the excellent things that you said is that if you are not delegating, your team is never going to kind of grow into those roles. If they don't grow and you're not also spending time kind of growing yourself, no one's going anywhere. Mistakes when you get into the role. This was another great article that you wrote. Oftentimes we get so, and I have clients who are so focused on getting that promotion. They're spending all the time on getting there and then all of a sudden they're there. (laughs) And, you know, they haven't thought about what do I need to do to be successful here early on in the role? And you've broken this down, building trust, being open to influence and learning to adapt your messages. So I wanted to talk some brass tacks about three of these. The part around... You know, being open to influence the, you know, the listening tour, being humble and getting feedback. We know this is what great you know, leaders and effective team builders need to do. But I want to ask you and, and maybe challenge you a little bit on this, because if you go around and you're asking a lot of questions or looking naive about things, oftentimes that can, depending how you do it, undercut your credibility experience. Just an example, one of my executive clients said, you know, I went and did this and two months in, we had a team meeting and one of the team members said, I wish corporate would send a total expert here to help us, you know, out and lead us. And that was actually her who had been sent over, right? She was that individual, but they had not seen her because she was perhaps leaving too much to them. And, And so, Let's have a discussion about this because asking a lot of questions or you know not highlighting some of your credibility can have a downside, or I see that. Are there ways to make sure you're striking this balance? You still have credibility, but you're open. A- and it, I don't think it necessarily has to be this dichotomy, but I want to put this out there so we can discuss it.
1: Yeah. No, thank you. That's a great, great observation and great topic. So the, this idea of being open, especially as you transition or pivot into a new role or career, is basically leading with vulnerability because at the beginning, some of the change management challenges that you're going to face is that people may be you know may not be as open of, of you joining.' Uh, they don't, nobody likes change. H- humans avoid change and they don't like change. So one way to uh, kind of navigate through that, is obviously being humble, asking and understanding what motivates them, what do they need to succeed, because that is how you can support them and how later on you can influence them so that they are enrolled into your vision. So that's the level of openness that I'm, that I'm talking about. Obviously, you're brought into the new role because of your strengths and your experience, and you need to leverage that. What I think sometimes is the mistake that people do is that they become indecisive. I am not talking about uh, having 20 cooks in the kitchen you know that's not a way to cook a meal you have to make decisions but you make decisions with the knowledge that you have received from the team so that you understand where they're coming from and so that you can get them to support the final decision because in order to have a well-oiled machine you know you need to know when to be a leader and when to be a follower so i think again people will be inspired by your leadership if you take a moment to get to know them you acknowledge what they're going through and you basically ensure that you're there to support them that success is success for the whole
2: your book forthcoming book we don't have time to go into it in depth but you know <laughs> one important idea that you want to share why you know why people should pick it up or what they'll benefit from it
1: Yes, yes. No, thank you. So just to remind everyone, the, the working title is Zigzag to the Top, How to Master the Mindset, Behaviors, and Habits to Succeed. And the reason why I kind of gravitated to that is that the idea that a career is only one way up, it's stale. It's you know, there's so many different opportunities that you have the ability to pursue these days, whether it is to go abroad, to try a cross-functional stretch role, frankly, to go entrepreneurship and then come back to corporate if that's uh, an experience you're looking for, that is going to help you be more agile, develop new soft skills, and frankly, differentiate from your peers. One of the things that I sometimes see people do and the mistakes that I see, uh, especially uh, young professionals do, is that they think that they need to be a specialist and frankly, yes, as an individual contributor, being a specialist is great because you are an expert in an area. But as you grow in your career, and because technology is evolving so fast, that expertise may become stale very quickly. So you need to still be able to develop soft skills, learn how to manage, learn how to influence and navigate uh, you know, the corporate ladder so that you're able to be flexible and pivot. Uh, now we have to pivot careers, whether we like it or not, 10 to 12 times in a lifetime. So that can only happen if you have the ability to learn, you know, the growth mindset, if you're flexible, if you're always looking to create your own learning plan, don't expect the company to take care of you. You need to do it for yourself. And if you are becoming an expert and again, self-promoting, adding value, building your brand.
2: So a lot about, proactively managing your career, knowing that you're going to have to zigzag with, with with changes. Jenny, any final important topic or question that you want to raise to, to end our interview?
1: Uh, yeah, so one, and it's actually linked to my the article that I published today, which is about innovation, is that, again, leaving room for innovative thinking and creativity is something that we all need to do And it is a challenge because, Michael, we don't like ambiguity, right? Nobody likes uncertainty. Everybody wants to do a job and do it well and be recognized for it. But you can only grow or, frankly, catapult your growth if you're taking a risk. Yes, you may fail, but there's always learning with failure, and you will become better next time. So I think, again, try to build in into your career some truly unlocking opportunities, you know, that are going to accelerate your growth, your learning so that you can, you know, do the most of it and, and truly, uh, again, have, have have the ability to uh, grow fast and differentiate. Um, another thing that I advise people is, again, explore, you know, experiment. The intersection of different areas is what's driving the growth for many different companies and industries the intersection between technology and biotech, the intersection you know, between marketing and health and wellness. My gosh, if you're able to navigate these areas and build a name for yourself, you are going to truly be unique and become an expert. So that's some of the things that I would advise people to do.
2: I love that idea. So think about the intersections and be actively experimenting or spending some time. You called it the 10 or yeah. 20% around there. Jenny, how do people find you, reach you, see your work?
1: Yes, no, thank you. So definitely connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, you know, Jenny Fernandez. I advise everyone to you know, send me an invite, uh, a message, and frankly, follow me in my HBR articles, Forbes, Fast Company, I love writing and adding value and will continue to do so and be in the lookout for my book next year.
2: I'm looking forward to it and very excited. And thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure.
3: Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's com.